Today I'm going to be ministering through a message I'm calling Incorruptible Innocence. Now I want those words just to find a sticky spot in your heart for a second because that's exactly what every single person under the sound of my voice right now has. You have an incorruptible innocence. And what I want us to see through the message today is that we can't mess this innocence up. Our innocence cannot be corrupted by our own hands, by our own minds. And truthfully, our innocence cannot even be corrupted by our own doctrine, by the way we believe. Once we are in Christ, we are in Christ. And that is a perfect innocence that he gives us. And that innocence cannot be corrupted. Aren't you happy for that? I am. Our daughter Sarah gave me an Ancestry.com DNA test kit for Father's Day this year. You got a little test tube that you fill to a certain line with your spit, right? And you fill it to a certain line, and you cork it, and you put it in a bag that's kind of leak-proof, and then you put it in a crush-resistance box, and you mail it in to Ancestry.com. You wait as they analyze your spit. (laughs) (laughs) And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and then eventually everything is done on their end, and they'll email you the results. And when the DNA test results were emailed to me, and I opened them up, to be honest with you, I was a bit surprised to discover that my DNA test results told a different story, a vastly different story than what I had learned regarding like the country, the continent that my ancestors migrated from, and even right down to the surname for my family. I was just a bit surprised at uh, the results. They were quite different. The same thing happens in the church. We are instructed in ways that are vastly different than the blueprint of the new covenant identity. We don't typically discover that surprise till we step into something like the finished work of grace, and then we have the ability to look back and compare. And we go, ah, that's quite different than what I came up in, what I got used to, right? And so I began to think about that, and I began to ask some questions, just kind of rhetorical questions. And I thought, were my parents in error? Had they been misinformed? Like a talking bird, had they repeated what they had learned? And that's typically how it happens. As you're developing, you begin to learn things. And we're like little parrots. We're like talking birds that just repeat things. We don't even know what we're saying sometimes. We're just repeating what we've heard over time. Were my parents trying to hide something? I don't think so. It didn't feel that way. Or was their understanding of our family lineage different from what my DNA test results showed because over the generations, the facts had been corrupted and the truths distorted. As I began to ask those questions, I thought, you know, those are reasonable questions. Those are fair questions. Those are kind of forensic style questions as you kind of probe things. And I believe the answer, kind of like DNA, 
comes from a mixture of sources. Now, let me see if I can make this point come home to you. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you purchased a young bird, and this bird is a kind of breed that has the capability of talking. And you're a busy person, so you have to go away on business trips a lot. And so what you do is you leave your bird with different family members and different friends. You kind of have this rotating bird, right, as you move him around, right? And then uh, one day you hear your bird mimic the sound of a train. And you think, well, I don't live anywhere near a train. But then you go, ah, but the uncle that I leave my bird with from time to time, he lives right next to the train track. So now you understand why your bird does that, right? On another occasion, you hear your bird say, here, kitty, 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 here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Uh, you say, I don't own a cat. But then you think, ah, oh, but my cousin, whom I leave my bird with at times, she owns a cat. So now you make the connection. That's where he picked that up at, right? On another day, you hear your bird mimic the sound of a noon church bell. Now, in your mind, you go, well, I don't live anywhere near a church. But then you remember, my grandmother, who I sometimes leave my bird with when I go out of town, she lives right next door to the church. That's where that bird picked that up. On another day, you hear your bird imitating John Wayne. Howdy, partner. <laughs> Terrible John Wayne, I'm sure. <laughs> you hear your bird imitating John Wayne, and you think, I haven't watched a John Wayne movie in years. Oh, that's right. My daddy whom I sometimes leave my bird with, he loves John Wayne Western. So now you make the connection, don't you? And yet on another occasion, you hear your bird repeating profanity. And you think, hey, wait a second now. I'm going to super glue your beak, you keep that up. You think, I, I don't talk like that. And you remember, that buddy of mine, who I leave my bird with from time to time, he talks like that. Now, uh, <laughs> I hope I didn't wear you out with that medley of examples, but what I wanted us to see is that like talking birds, our lives, come on, think about it now, our lives are an amalgam of sounds, sensations, sights and smells, and these senses. They develop into something called a belief system. This is why we believe what we believe. It's the things we see, the things we hear, our environment. So we take on and we develop this belief system, which becomes, listen to me carefully, this is the way the Holy Spirit said it to me, which becomes the language of our heart. Does that make sense? What you believe, the scriptures even say, for out of the mouth comes the overflow comes the abundance of the heart. And the principle that I want us to see is this. 
like a talking bird, many are not able to separate fact from fiction. And because of that, our lives can be set on a trajectory, if you will, to repeat, to mimic unprofitable rhetoric and destructive behavior. Now, folks, I'm trying to make this as simple as I can, okay? I told Valerie the other day, I said, I wish there was one message I could preach, you could preach, somebody would preach out there that was the silver bullet. Everybody from that word would understand grace to the max. It just would be done with one word, one sermon. It's not like that, friends. This is a slow drip. Remember, you keep hearing me talk about that. It takes more than one pass with the iron to get the whole shirt, doesn't it? You got to keep moving it. Iron sleeves and collars and everything else, right? I wish there was one pass and with a message that we could preach and people would get it. But there's not. The finished work of Jesus Christ is so vital for us to experience and experience again and again and again and again. Everything is built on this foundation. Everything grows up and out of this repeated foundation again and again and again. Look, if you're swimming across a lake and you stop swimming, well, then you either have to go into treading water or if you know how to float on your back, I suppose. But if you don't know how to tread water, well, then you typically just go down, right? And so this grace is this way where we're just constantly, we're just swimming. It's effortless, though. Swimming in his grace. We're going with the current, not against it, friends. With it, right? At first, it feels like you're going against it. But then eventually, it feels like it turns you around. And you go like, oh, now I get it. I see what rest is. You know, it's a lot easier. I've swam in rivers when we were kids. It's a lot easier to swim with the current than against it. You know that, don't you? As a believer, if you have not been exposed to the truth that you possess, you already have it. If you have not been exposed to the truth that you already possess an incorruptible innocence, then the love language of your spiritual heart will remain atrophied. It will remain immature. It will not develop right because this is the heart. It's the lungs to us growing in Christ is to understand God's amazing love. But after that, that you are perfect in his eyes. You have an incorruptible innocence. Until you understand that, you're going to always be swimming against the current. But when you come to that revelation, there's nothing I can do to change his mind. I have an incorruptible innocence. Then, then he turns you in the river. You're still in the same river. You're still in the same Christ. But he finds a way for us to quit wearing ourselves out, quit getting burned out on religion and get away with him and learn how to take a real rest and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Now, when it comes to church denominations and church doctrine, we find similar parallels to what I've been talking about here. Believers, like talking birds, 
will repeat what they've learned regardless of whether it's true. Did you know that? They'll do it. Did you know that a talking bird is not concerned with facts or fiction, tales or truths? It doesn't concern that bird a bit. You could teach a cockatoo to say that Abraham Lincoln was the first president of the United States, and every time that bird spoke those words, it wouldn't feel the least bit of condemnation. Even though it declared a distorted fact and an untruth, it would feel perfectly fine. And many believers repeat distorted and twisted facts and truths, and because they feel no inner criticism, in other words, they don't feel the check, if you will, that gives them the sense of what I've said is true. It's got to be true. I didn't feel anything. I've spoken something. It seemed true, felt true. It's got to be true, right? But what's even more concerning than a bird telling its listeners that Lincoln was the first president of the United States is that there would be Believe it or not, a sizable group of people who, because they do not know their history, would agree with that bird. And because people are not familiar with the new covenant, they keep amening the preacher, even as preachers rain down condemnation upon the people of God. They just keep amening the preacher because you know why? They're not familiar with their spiritual DNA. They're not familiar with their incorruptible innocence. They're not familiar with God's unconditional love. And so they feel like they've got to pay for stuff. They feel like they've got to work for stuff. They've got to perform to please God. They've got to be sorry all the time. You could teach your parrot to say, boy, I wish I could get into a parrot voice here. Uh, the earth is flat. Or can somebody... <laughs> the earth is flat. You could teach your parrot to say, the earth is flat. And did you know that there would be 35, about 35 million Americans that would agree with your bird, in particular the millennials? Now, there's only about 350 million people in the United States of America. That means one out of every 10 people believe that the earth is flat. Now, you and I, I think we know better than that, don't we? Come on. Friends, in light of the revelation of my DNA test, I can no longer use the same rhetoric that I used before the test results. You see, before the test results came, I said all my life I'm 25% Native American Indian. But when I looked at the test, guess what? It showed I was 0% Native American Indian. That's what my daddy told me. That's what my mama told me. But my DNA result says you are 0% Native American Indian. So for me to continue in light of the evidence to continue to propagate something that's untrue, I mean, that would be disingenuous, wouldn't it? With that thought in mind, I've concluded I could never say that again. I don't care how many years I got used to saying that. And so what happens is we come into grace, there's a residue that carries over into your life. I wish it was as simple as, I'm no longer 25% Indian, but there's so many things. It comes at you from all different angles. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian believers because they were a hot 
mess. They were suing one another in the court of law, and they were causing great divisions within the church. And Paul would eventually pen his way into what is known as the love chapter in 1 Corinthians. You see, Paul knew that the way out of the Corinthians' reckless behavior and loose living was made available through the revelation of God's love. See, you can put somebody under some rules. You can put somebody under a checklist. You can put somebody under do's and don'ts, law, if you will. You can do all that, but that's not the way out, friends, of reckless living. It's not the way out of loose living. And so the Apostle Paul knew what it took to take them and to carry them out of their nonsense. His new converts were having difficulty. Now, this is the church today, too. They were having difficulty breaking the habits from their former lifestyles. Why? Because they got used to it, just like a parrot. Once you teach a parrot something or a talking bird something, they will never forget that. They never forget their words. They never do. And so when we get programmed like that, We've got this jargon. We have this spiritual language. We have this automatic response to things. That's why it's so important to allow the finished work to get deeper into your soul, to repeat it, to say it out loud. That's why I like to read my Bible out loud. You know, to do a work on the inside of me. And so these Corinthian believers came over, they're joyful because they're experiencing God's grace, but at the same time, they've got a lifetime of junk stuck in their trunk, right? These Corinthian believers had allowed the birds of mixture to chirp the same old smack as they did under an old covenant, just chirp, 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 and you got to shut that stuff off, friends. You know, so Paul had a smorgasbord of things he addressed in First and Second Corinthians. One of them was certainly their behavior. He reprimanded them for some of the things they were doing. And then he counseled them with godly wisdom. See, God is not just about reprimanding us, telling us everything we've done wrong. He wants to give us godly wisdom. Paul encouraged them. He instructed them to help them to see what true worship looked like. And then Paul, I love this part, Paul, like a caring daddy, had the Corinthians stand in front of a full-length mirror of God's love. Can you imagine that? Walking over to a full-length mirror of just daddy's love. That's what the Apostle Paul did. See, it's the sandwich technique. He deals with the stuff up front, and then he showcases Daddy's love. And then he closes out the letter. I want to ask you a question. What do you suppose they saw as they gazed into the mirror of God's love? They saw that they didn't understand the first thing about righteousness, God's love, and the incorruptible innocence that they possessed. I want to ask you a question. Why did he invest the time to write such a letter to troubled souls? Why would he do that? 
because he knew that the Corinthians had an identity problem that the unbelieving judges couldn't settle. See, that's what they were doing. They had problems, they had disputes, they were running to the unbelieving judges. And he said, hmm, you got an identity issue. If we correct that, you'll have no need for Corlin. You'll have no need to run to these judges. And as I thought about that, I thought, it's only when a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, accepts the revelation that they have been given as a gift this incorruptible innocence. It's then that behavior changes. It's the modifier. It's what works in you to change behavior. Then behavior change and brawling will cease. The incorruptible innocence is rooted, though, in God's love. If you try to walk in incorruptible innocence, apart from God's love, you'll end up legalistic because you'll think you're the one who's making yourself innocent. Everything grows up and out of God's love. Everything is connected, friends. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, we find these words in the message paraphrase, okay? Simplicity, right to the point. Look at these words. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians who have all these problems going on. And he says, if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I am nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. A rusty gate is a nasty sound. I mean, spooky. You know, they're just really bad. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, if I speak like an angel, I've got all this eloquence. I'm a good communicator. But he says, but if I don't love, that gets translated into the sound of a rusty gate. I think one version says a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. They're all annoying, right? That's the point he's trying to make. He said, if I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries, and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. Come on, friends. This is where the church needs to spend more time, is understanding the love of God. It's all connected with our performance, our behavior, the way we think, the way we perform. It's all connected. The seedbed is God's love. He said, if I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, And what I do, oh, look at these words now. He said, I am bankrupt. Is that what it says? I am bankrupt without love. Now he tells them, this is what love looks like. Now that you're in front of the mirror, okay? Now that you're in front of the mirror, I want to show you what love looks like. 
He says, love never gives up. That's equal to love is patient. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Now look, I'm still trying to walk in this much love. Do you understand this? This is what the Apostle Paul, he's living this. He's preaching this. He's found the power of God. He's found the joy of God. He's found the true meaning of life. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. That's coveting, isn't it? Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. It doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. I love that. Go out of your way to make somebody else first. This is love. And he's wanting them to see this is what the love of the Father looks like. He's not trying to shame them and say, you don't have this kind of love. No, he's wanting them to see this is what the Father's love looks like. This is the way he loves you and me, us and we, right? This is Daddy's love. He says, love doesn't fly off the handle. You ever flew off the handle? Come on. Oh, I didn't see no hands go up there. <laughs> love doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. One version says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't this an awesome love from the Father? That he doesn't fly off the handle? That he keeps no record of wrongs? And it says, love doesn't revel when others grovel. Love takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Puts up with anything. Come on. God puts up with anything, doesn't he? Puts up with everything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Doesn't it warm your heart knowing that the Father always looks for the best in you? And he always sees the best in you? And even when we have our less than shining moments, he still sees the best in us? Why? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. The things that you thought you had done leading up to your shining moment, he said, that's already gone. He's only seeing your shining moments. He always looks for the best. Never looks back. Never turns his back on you. But keeps going to the end. I love this. Love never dies. Love never fails. Love never dies. I don't know about you, but I want this kind of love, don't you? I want this kind of love. Where does this love come from? It's the God kind of love. And how do we get this kind of love? We already have it. And that's my point. We already have it. So we're often chasing after things. We already have God's love like that. 
We already have all that from the Father. So the next time you look in your mirror, whether it's your little rear view mirror or if it's a full length mirror, I want you to see the way the Father loves you. That kind of love, when it gets on you and in you, it begins to help you to live that kind of love. I mean, what else would do it? It's a dog-eat-dog world for the world, right? You don't love me, I don't love you. You treat me bad, I treat you bad. Oh, this is not the God kind of love. And our identity is rooted in God's love. Our inheritance is rooted in God's love. I already have it. That is your new response. The bird could say, I want this kind of love. No! You keep that up, I'll put a rubber band around your beak. Stop that! I already have this kind of love. It's my father's love. So here's the question, okay? Here's the question. Because I think you believe everything I just said right there, right? But because we live in this real world and we realize that we're not always walking in love, we have to ask the question, what is it that gets in the way? What gets in the way of us expressing love like this? What clouds our understanding and hides the truth that we've been given this kind of love and that we've been given the gift of incorruptible innocence? Now that's a good question. What is it? Could the inhibitor be coming from an amalgam of sounds and sensations, sights and smells of the mixture of both covenants? I'd say that's exactly where it's coming from, friends. Because you find people that they just go, I've been in front of them so many times over the years, they just say, I can't believe God would love me like that. Believer and unbeliever have said that to me. There's just no way God could love me that way. But I believe that's where it comes from. It's this mixture of both covenants. Could it be the reason many never find, they never experience, they never live the God kind of life? Could it be that believers withhold the giving of unconditional love because they are not fully convinced that God loves them with a 1 Corinthians chapter 13 kind of love. Could it be that? A love that never dies. A love that never fails. Did you know that love and identity are the forerunners to maturity? And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's laying a foundation. He's showing them the Father's love. And then he's going to walk them into their present stage by injecting himself into the narrative. And so let's look at the next scriptures. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. He said, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood or I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, he said, I put away childish things. For now, we see through a glass darkly. It's got some smudges on it. I can't quite make it out. But he says, but then, face to face, and that's why it's so important to look into the mirror of God's love. See him face to face. See his love. 
So it takes away the smudges in the darkness. But then face to face, he says, now I know in part. He said, I only know in part. But then shall I know even as also I am known. And then he concludes that 13th chapter by saying, and now abideth, now remaineth these three things, faith, hope, and love. But then look what he says, but the greatest of these is love. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to be honest with you. I think I was taught more about faith than I was the love of God growing up. And I'm not knocking faith. Faith is awesome. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is amazing. It's an amazing grace and it's amazing faith. But I heard more sermons on faith and more sermons on hope, uh, inspiration, than I did on the love of God. And the love of God is the root system to everything. Our faith, our grace, our hope. Everything comes up and out of God's love. What was the Apostle Paul saying to the Corinthians? Again, he was saying there's a connection between love and identity. He was saying, you know what? I can identify with you guys. You see, I acted just like you when I was a child. I dragged people out of their homes and killed them because they belong to the way. Huh? How childish is that? Very childish. I understood like you. I even thought like you do. He said, you know, I had a coveting problem of all sorts, and it caused excessive inner conflict. I couldn't stand it. I could tell I was coveting when I looked at the Scriptures and it said, thou shalt not covet. I'm like, I'm coveting all the time. I want your house, I want your chariot, whatever you got, you know. I want it all. I want your wife. But when I became a man, he says, I put away childish things. Friends, becoming a man is not a reference to age, but maturity. And I don't know of anything that will mature a believer more quickly, more effectively, and more permanently than the revelation of the finished work of the new covenant of grace and the glorious truth that as believers, we already possess God's first Corinthians chapter 13 love, and we already are benefactors of the incorruptible innocence that he's given us. Now, the church is full of mature people. Seems to me like I heard a pin drop on the carpet. See, I put that planned pause in there for a reason, to get you thinking about that. Is it really? Full of mature people, if age is the measuring stick for maturity, okay? But the measuring stick is not years alone, the prophet Jeremiah said, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken, now this is under the old covenant now. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. A believer will remain an immature child, a broken cistern, if you will, 
as long, I'm talking about in their soul now, not their spirit, as long as they continue to dig their own well and distance themselves from the truth, that their identity is rooted in the well of God's love for them and not in the reservoirs built with human hands. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Church taught me, I dug a lot of wells, friends. So they'll remain stuck until they understand, I don't have to dig my own well. I don't have to create my own water. I don't have to bring my own reservoir to the table. The well of his love is wide and long, deep and high, and it's ours through faith in Christ. Come on. His love is ours. And the Bible expresses his love in terms of dimensions. Why does he do that? So that we can understand it. So that we can get some sort of glimpse of what are you talking about here? It's deep and wide, high, tall, all that stuff. The revelation of Christ's love for us, you know what it does? It atrophies the trachea of the mimicking and religious parent. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, we find these words. For this reason, come on, this is the Apostle Paul writing. See, he wrote already to the Corinthians. Now he's writing to the Ephesians. Do you see the ribbon that he's running through all of his books? He says, for this is the reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He said, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. Come on. Through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Next scripture. And then watch what he says. He says, and I pray that you, look what he says, being rooted. I told you, love is the root system. Being rooted and established in love, that's where it starts. I wouldn't want to live this Christian life without love. I couldn't stand it. It would be very pharisaical. It would be about going through all the motions, standing on the street corners, long tassels, oil on my head, but not lift a finger to help somebody, to hug somebody in their time of need. Because you might get your robe dirty. I wouldn't be able to take that, friends. So he says, and I pray that you being rooted. Come on, man. Watch the love grow a root system and just entangle itself around one another and grab everything in sight underneath the ground. And establish, that means it's not going anywhere. It's not moving. That it's not here one day and there another, but it's a constant source. Established in love. And then he says the words may have power. Do you understand that there's no power without love? Love is the power, friends. It's not just faith. It's not just hope. It's love that's the power. Established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Look at these words. See, he says to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I love that. The revelation of the Father's love. Now, what's the revelation of the Father's love? The revelation of the Father's love is Jesus. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. Not about the end of the world. 
the book of Revelation, that's why it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we've turned it into an end times book. No, it's the revelation of Christ. And the revelation of God's word is Jesus. He's the source of love. He was the expression of love when God wanted to save man. For God so loved the world that he gave us the source of love. He gave us Jesus. He gave us his love manifest through his son. Beautiful. And so the revelation of the Father's love is Jesus. He's the source of love. And he just like puts the cherry on top of the the whipping cream by saying, oh, by the way, you get incorruptible innocence with him too. Isn't that awesome? I think those are two of the greatest gifts that a man can get if we're talking about on a spiritual level. The gift of Jesus, the Father's expression of love, and then understanding, embracing the truth that you have been given an incorruptible innocence. Now, some people don't believe that. They'll fight with you. But I'm telling you, I have an incorruptible innocence. You do too. You have an incorruptible innocence. Love is our identity. My identity is Jesus. He's love. God is love. Love is our identity. Love is our inheritance. Love is our innocence. Everything else fails except love. Didn't he say that? He said love never dies. Love never fails. We have the incorruptible love and the incorruptible innocence. And these are gifts from the Father, twin gifts, and they're beautiful. On top of all that, you know what he's done for us, according to Ephesians chapter 6? He's given us an undying love for Christ. So we can love Christ with an undying love. Right, because we have his love. His love is an undying love. So we love Christ with the same kind of love. Now, at one time, I believed that Christians could lose their salvation. That was for years and years and years. It wasn't a problem that I struggled with continuously, but every once in a while, because I didn't understand those scary scriptures that Valerie's been preaching about, because I didn't understand some of those scriptures, especially in Hebrews, they painted me in the proverbial corner And I'm telling you, there were times that it was dreadful. I mean, I was terrified. I didn't even want to hear those scriptures, right? Why? Because I wasn't rooted in God's love. I wasn't rooted in the understanding that I had an incorruptible innocence. I wasn't rooted in that. And so this was all about performance. And how good have I been lately? There was a big period of my Christian walk where I believed a guy could lose his salvation. It's just simply not true. I was convinced at one time, if you didn't tithe, (laughs) you would fall under the curse, just like Malachi talks about. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. I used to preach it. That there might be meat in my house, saith the Lord, and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. See, I was still stuck. And pour out a blessing that you shall not be able to receive it all. And I will rebuke the devourer for my name's sake. You know, I mean, it was stuck, friends. And so there was a time that 
I believe that you had to tithe or you, had, you fell under the curse. And if you withheld the tithe, it would cost you more than the giving of your 10%. So you might as well just bite the bullet, you know, uh, just get it over with, you know, and get it out, you know. Through a former denomination, I was taught that if I didn't speak in tongues, I didn't have the Holy Spirit. That never set well with me. I mean, I began to speak in tongues just a few months after I became born again. And that's fine. If you do, you do. You don't. The Apostle Paul says not all speak with tongues, right? And that's fine. That's no big deal. No condemnation, okay? But there was a time that I was told, well, if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. They were mimicking what they had heard, right? They were just mimicking like a little parrot what they had heard somewhere along the line. Listen, you can't be saved and not have the Holy Spirit. Now, there is the gift of speaking in tongues, and it doesn't make you any more spiritual than anybody else. Just take it for what it is. But I was taught that. Maybe you can identify with that particular one there itself, too. And through the denomination that I grew up in, I was taught that if you were divorced and remarried, now let's get the little quotation marks out, right? Without proper grounds. And so for five to six years, I bawled like a baby at times because I was married one time. I got saved after my first marriage fell apart. But I bawled like a baby for the longest time thinking, God, I cannot. I'm 35 years old. I cannot live the rest of my life without a woman. Now, this is what my church teaches, so it's got to be right. See what I mean? And I was under that condemnation. And I'm telling you what, the Holy Spirit set me totally free. He has a way of communicating things to me, drawing pictures in my head. He showed me the truth in that. And I don't have time to go there. But the church would say, you're living in a state of perpetual adultery adultery brother i'm like perpetual adultery yeah so if god comes back right now there's no way for you to repent because you're still married to this other woman friends come on i thank god i've been released from that so we believed what i call delusional untruths and why did we believe these delusional untruths i'm gonna tell you why because the culture or the subculture of our denominations and our doctrines ingrained those delusions into our very souls as though they were truth. Take a look at the word delusion. It says delusion is defined like this, an unshakable belief in something untrue in spite of contrary evidence. That's delusion. When evidence stares you right in the face and somebody explains it to you and you say, no, thank you. You're delusional, friends. Did you know that most believers, Valerie and I talk about this all the time, did you know that most believers will not allow the Bible to get in the way of their beliefs? <laughs> did you hear what I said? I know That sounded silly, didn't it? In other words, if they already believe something, they won't let the Bible change their mind. How nonsensical is that? Believers can interpret the scriptures a certain way throughout their entire lives, even while the scriptures are communicating a vastly different message, kind of like the DNA thing I was telling you about earlier. And because most believers rely solely upon their church leaders for instruction and their spiritual 
edification, their spiritual enlightenment. They never detect the incongruencies or corruption of the doctrine, the very doctrine that they are adhering to. They never detect it because they never challenge it. Many will draw their last breaths having never been assured in their own heart since having believed that they possessed an incorruptible innocence the whole time. They'll go to the grave like that. They'll go to heaven, but they'll go to the grave like that. You say, Pastor Mark, how does this happen? How can people believe things that have no basis for truth? I mean, that's a reasonable question. How can you believe something that has no basis for truth? If the same Holy Spirit lives in all believers, and he does, then why does he allow us to exchange truths for tales and fact for fiction? Why does the Holy Spirit permit us to be on separate pages, just all over the place? And I think those are thought-provoking questions, and I continuously wrestle with those questions and those thoughts. The short answer is, we're not listening to the Holy Spirit. And as a result, what happens is we live out our lives exactly the way the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, for now we see through a glass darkly, and we only know in part. And even though these questions that I just ask frustrate me, you know what I do is I allow that frustration to be the very energy that energizes me to continue to preach this gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now listen to me carefully. Did you know that the brain, come on, the brain contains something called a belief engine? The belief engine is like the search engine for the internet. So when the brain's belief engine or the internet search engine is presented with a question, you type in a word, any material of any sort, immediately both of them go into a search mode. Your brain or the internet. And neither the brain nor the internet can conjure up that which is not already there. What is not there is not going to be present when your brain is presented with something. Same thing with the internet. Now, the brain and the internet have default answers, right? Default thinking is what our brains prefer. You want to know why? Because they don't have to work as hard. So I can just default to what I already know. And this is where the church gets stuck, is they just have pat responses. They say it the same way every single time they get on that same subject. This is my contribution. You're going to say it the exact same way. It has been scientifically proven that our brains are instinctively attracted to sedentary behavior. Our brains contain a plethora of auto-reply messages. (laughs) It loves default thinking. I was talking with a believer this past week, 
We started out this conversation so good too. Well, you know, brother, Satan puts sickness and disease on God's people if they've been disobedient or if they try to live under the law. Okay, this is what he said. We're talking over the phone, right? Now, immediately, my brain accessed its belief engine. And my default thinking quickly surveyed all of my auto-reply options. It's almost like the brain has all these drop-down menus, right, with all these different options to select from. One of the auto-reply options was just ignore him. That was an option I could have selected. Another option was go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another option would have been something as extreme as saying, yeah, oh, yeah, amen, brother, okay. Still another option was to change the subject. Just pretend like you didn't even hear that. But there's no liberty in that. There's no love in that. And there's no declaration, no opportunity for people to see their incorruptible innocence in any of those auto-reply responses and comments. Would you agree? But there was another auto-reply option that crawled up and out of my belief engine. And I said, friend, I'm afraid I have to disagree with you. Now, I don't like conflict any more than you do, but I've learned throughout life that if you avoid outward conflict, you're going to still have to deal with inward conflict. So this was my response to him. Look at this scripture right here. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Look at this. Now, please, folks, remember this. You've heard this before. No one who has become part of God's family makes a practice of sinning. For Christ, God's Son, holds him securely. Look at these words. And the devil cannot get his hands on him. One version says the evil one cannot touch him. So the next time you hear sickness or disease or whatever it may be, you wake up with a cold, a headache, listen, friends, go back to this scripture. The evil one cannot touch you. If he could, you wouldn't be here today. What I understand is that the incorruptible seed lives on the inside of me. That's 1 John, right? He put an incorruptible seed. That seed is Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. That incorruptible seed lives on the inside of me, and that incorruptible seed produces an incorruptible innocence, and that innocence is not compatible with sin. See, the scriptures say there that we know that one who has become part of God's family, a son or a daughter, does not make a practice of sinning. Why? Because we hate sin. We loathe sin. We detest sin sin. We have new drop-down menus, if you will, that God says, no, it's love, it's kindness, it's patience, it's keeping no record of wrongs, that kind of stuff flowing from us. This is why it's so important. If you don't understand the love of God and know the love of God, this stuff over here doesn't work. It doesn't work well. Because then it's all about, well, do I deserve it this week? I don't know, I've been sinning or something. I don't know. And then it says, We know that we are children of God and that all, look at this, now all the rest of the world around us is under Satan's power and control, but not you, not me. You're not under Satan's power and control. He said, we know all the world. He's there. 
He's influencing. He's killing, stealing, destroying. But you are not under Satan's power and control. And then he says, and we know that Christ, God's son, has come to help us understand and find the true God. Why would he say that? The true God. Because a version of God has been preached that's not true. An offshoot of God has been preached and declared that's simply not the facts. It's not true. So he said, we preach the true God. And now we are in God because we are in Jesus Christ, his son, who is the only true God, and he is eternal life. So what gets in the way of believers understanding and finding the only true God's heart? What gets in the way of believers embracing the incorruptible innocence gospel? I'll tell you what gets in the way. It's the rotating bird programmed with an amalgam of sounds and sensations, sights and sounds and smells. Most of what our birds are saying doesn't have anything to even do with a new covenant creation. And so it is with the doctrines that are preached from our pulpits, philosophies, principles, ideologies, that are an amalgam of old and new covenant mixture. These doctrines contain facts and fiction, tales and truths, and much of what is taught is not even fit for the body of Christ. So, where did it come from? Where did that come from? How did it get here? Because your grandmother, who lived next door to the railroad tracks, was taught that, you know, chugging her way through life, was what pleased God. You know, brother, you just got to keep on chugging, you know. Come on. Grandma taught it to her kids. Her kids taught it to her kids. On down the road. It came through your granddaddy who lived within the sound of the church bell. And you know what that did? That structured him to do something the same time, every single day, in the same place. That's called religion, friends. Now he's not a morning person. To find her up at 4.30 in the morning praying and reading the Bible means she didn't go to sleep last night, that's all. She doesn't get up in the morning to do that, but that's my time in the morning, right? So wherever you fit your prayer time in, wherever you fit your reading in, if you don't read, fine. If you don't pray, good. It doesn't matter. You're still his. You have an incorruptible innocence that's rooted in the Father's love for you. Look into the mirror. See that. See the expression of his love. See that it's in Christ I have all things, possess all things. Please note that God is not the one hurling out corruption, sickness, disease, tragedy, whatever it may be. It comes primarily through the flesh, strengthened by the absence of not knowing the exceeding dimension of the Father's well of love. Why do I mention this? So that like a talking bird, we quit blaming God. We're like a Flip Wilson and we say, the devil made me do it. We're all over the place. We blame circumstances. <laughs> Just to try to explain away why bad things happen to good people, God's people. Remember, 
A talking bird is not concerned with facts or fiction, tales or truths. But that doesn't mean you and I shouldn't be. There is freedom, liberty, if you will, that comes as we understand that even, come on, even when a believer sows to the flesh, come on, man, it's going to happen from time to time, their incorruptible innocence can never become corrupted. Remember, it's rooted in his love. It's a love that doesn't leave us. It's a love that never dies. I'm talking about a corruption that can occasionally bombard, look, our mind, yes, our conscience, yes, and even from time to time manifest in our character, but that same corruption can never be expressed in our spirit man, can never be expressed from him. The new covenant releases, you know what it does? It releases our true identity in the one true God. We have been established, the scriptures say, in true righteousness and holiness. Those are gifts from our daddy. Righteousness, holiness. The flesh is best understood as this. You say, what is the flesh exactly? It's best understood as this. It's your former way of thinking. I'm talking about the corrupted and distorted residue from our former programming. It's the belief system that we possessed at one time. It's the default setting with its drop-down menu of options that we used to select from. But now that faith has come, come on, now that faith has come, we are no longer under that drop-down menu. We are no longer under that law. We are no longer under Satan's power and control. We are no longer participants of distorted and twisted facts and truths. Our identity is not determined by 25% this and 40% that and 35% these. We are 100% His. One of the main reasons that believers do not study their Bibles is because it's work. I mean, don't just take on everything I believe. Go study it out. See if what I'm speaking is true and take it with you. When I was looking at my family's 1930 and 1940 census records, I found it fascinating. It's all handwritten. There's a part of me going, this was my family my family history and one of the things that I was particularly drawn to was the fact that there was a column that notated the highest grade of education they completed I saw it ranging primarily from zero there was a lot of zeros the high end was third grade I know for a fact that my daddy had a second grade education. He told me that all the time. He said, son, I went to only to second grade. Now imagine with me for a moment that a person with a second grade education is presented with a seventh grade math problem. They wouldn't know how to respond. Why? Because it's a road They've never been down. And so it is with the gospel of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's just simply a road they've never been down before. 
You say, Mark, I think you've been redundant here. You've made your point. Can you just land this plane on a runway that proves that believers possess an incorruptible innocence? Romans chapter 4, verse 25, and then Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, they all run together. Romans 4, 25 ends. It walks right into Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, in other words, for that reason, since we have been justified, same word, through faith, come on, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, behind the English word justified there, we discover a Greek word. It's the Greek word dekaios. Dekaios. Look what it means. It means upright, righteous, faultless, guiltless. Look at that word. Innocent. Do you see that? Because of what Jesus did, we have this by faith in his grace. Innocent, approved, and acceptable of God. And just in case that's not enough, I looked into Strong's Concordance and said, does it say any more? Let's look at the next part of this. It says this. One who needs no rectification in the heart or life. Do you see that? You never, ever need an alteration. You never need a modification. You never need an improvement of any sort. You never need a correction. There's no need for whiteout here, friends. Your sins have been taken away. They have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification and for our innocence. That's what it means. He was raised to life for our innocence. Therefore, since we have been given an incorruptible innocence, an innocence that needs no rectification in your heart or in the life that you walk through, this incorruptible innocence and righteousness come and are accessed by grace through faith in Jesus' finished work. (laughs) Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. The way the Father sees His children is vastly different from the way many of His children see Him or even see themselves. Many believers wrestle with distorted images of themselves, images that have gained access through the corrupted DNA of Old Covenant teachings. Their default thinking accesses drop-down menus that make it challenging to sort fact from fiction and tales from truths. They perceive that they live near the railroad tracks, but the tracks are not there. They perceive, I think I heard a cat. I think I heard a church bell. But there's no cat. There's no church. The Father sees us as righteous, faultless, guiltless, and innocent. We need no alterations, modifications, or rectifications in our heart.
You say, but what about those times, Mark, when our heart condemn us? How do we respond in those times? We remind ourselves that God is greater than our hearts. And the scripture says, and he knows all things. And he knew all things before he saved you. And then we allow our heart and mind to fall into this sedentary rest of knowing I am totally innocent in my Father's heart. God's unconditional love, His complete acceptance, and the believer's incorruptible innocence were not only foreign to the Corinthian believers, but these delusional lies have also found their way into the modern day church. Lies that those things are not ours. They are ours. But what was the Apostle Paul's approach to accelerating the maturity of the Corinthians? He wanted them to grow up. They were just a bunch of babies. What was his approach to accelerating the maturity process in the Corinthians? Did he give each one of them a pre-programmed bird? There you go. Just listen to him. I got to go. I got another missionary journey to go on. No. Did he enroll them in Bible college? No. Did he condemn them with a good old-fashioned tongue lashing? Not at all. Paul had the Corinthian believers look into the mirror of God's sacrificial, patient, puts up with anything, keeps no record of wrong love. Then he reminded them that the Father's love is not only a love that never dies, but the love that is greater than faith and hope. Friends, the Father has not only given us his devoted love, but he has also given us an undying love for Christ. I'm talking about a love that showcases our iconic identity. I'm talking about a love that has prepared for us an inconceivable inheritance. And I'm talking about a love that has secured for the believer an incorruptible innocence. Amen. Father, thank you so much. I'm praising you today and thanking you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the truth of your word. So many people are stuck. They've been listening to a bird all their lives repeat fiction and untruths. But yet it sounded good. It felt right. So Father, thank you that it's only by the miracle of the Holy Spirit that he would speak to us and convey truths to us that would displace fiction and tales and would bring us into what we could see as the true God and the true heart of God. And Father, as we stand looking into the spiritual mirror, a mirror that just reflects our innocence, it reflects the relationship that we have with you. It reflects your love. It reflects a love that never dies. And so Father, we thank you that we can say your love is the same love that lives in me. And it's through the love of Christ that I can love others. 
And as we practice that love, it gets easier and easier and easier. So, Father, thank you for every opportunity that you give us to practice this kind of love. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.